When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, friends, and welcome to Terror Radio Podcast, where we're dedicated to giving you the best in horror and suspense old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and I'm truly excited about tonight's episode, which I entitled, Don't Close Your Eyes. So again, this is... Terror Radio. Tonight's episode features two lesser-known radio shows, Quiet, Please, and The Black Mass, which are two of my favorites. But then I say that every week. But anyway, Quiet, Please was created by writer Willis Cooper. And if you remember from last week's podcast, he was also the creator of the popular radio drama Lights Out. The show ran from June 8th 1947 to June 25th 1949 on ABC and although it was literally ignored during its initial run it's gained a huge following over the years especially with several radio historians who praise the well-written scripts as well as the um, outstanding acting radio announcer and actor Ernest Chappell took on the lead roles in every episode which usually only featured no more than two to three actors. Now, what made Chapel extremely unique was the way he made it seem as if he was just having a conversation with the audience. I mean, his delivery was so authentic, you usually forgot that he was acting. Tonight's story, The Thing on the Forbo Board, first broadcasted on August 9th, 1948. Now, this is considered by many fans to be one of the best suspenseful radio plays of all time, ranking right up there with Sorry Wrong Number and The Hitchhiker. But I'll let you make your own determination about that. So, sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to The Thing on the Forbo Board. Quiet, please. Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Furble Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago, a little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board is no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because 
Yeah, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level. Yeah, sure they do. By the time I was a roughneck, we'd got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells, trilobites mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe, then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing, and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Well, you see, uh, a core drill is hollow, and as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's going into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for myself, so I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunewald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi, Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? They yeah, all went to town. I'm the whole crew. Yeah, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd be in here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh, I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, no, seven pork chops. And bread. Then some coffee, kind of. Swell. Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a banquet. Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. Yeah. I don't see anybody. We'll keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. Like so. When did you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of hole, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. How? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The well, last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. I ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? <laughs> and put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, I'm much obliged. Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yeah. I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish those screech out of the... What's the matter? Hey, 
Wait a minute, Porky. Well, why did... Listen. What's eating you? You, you know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there on that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. You're going to get those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... Ah, what's you so jittery about, Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Doc Gunner, I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. Oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh, that's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight, I turned around and went outside, I found the car. And I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up, and when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the formal board, <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, forble board. Well, you've seen oil derricks or pictures of them. You know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forble board. Well, you see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a triple, four is a forble. When you pull the pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick with a traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. And then when a forble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilton wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the forble board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again until you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the forble board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off and... I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Wait a minute. Hang on. I ain't done. I poked at the Cora rock that looked like a uh, kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up. And it was cold. And it was heavy. And it was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. 
No, he could he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done? When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of peas, and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from down the forbal board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. I could hear, but I couldn't see up on the forbal board. Billy Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash alongside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck. left hand, well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand, and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car, and I got in. I stepped on the starter, and I couldn't get it to go, and then I remembered after I'm pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pipe, Ted. Well, what was he doing up on the formal board? Did you threaten him, and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the forbal board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides, how would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and... Personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, it's mighty mysterious. Well, so it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there. I want to start drilling again, and I'm short-handed. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again? And, well, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, I... okay. Let's get rolling. They got steam up, Hoppy? I'm a little All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. Hey, you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going. So, okay, I go up on the formal board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. No, I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first four-bullet drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the four-bullet. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, yeah, you keep your ideas to yourself. Well, that was enough. Two accidents in a row. 
The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more, and... As far as I know, the abandoned Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. And you know what? There was something up there on the formal board with me. And so a couple of days later I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it. And, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked in at the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in a core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again, and it came from above my head, and, and I... I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the formal board. Well, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. But there was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipes shivered. And I thought, what can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like, like Jack Straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the formal board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body. I'll not tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well. Come to an alien world and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone. Living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, 
That it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible. That if you sprayed it with mud or paint, or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face. I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. Ah, but it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. Tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunwald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend Albert April. Now, for a word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional. At least I, for one, hope so. Next week, the story is called Presto Changeo, I'm sure. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. This program was heard in Canada through the facilities of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Ugh. Every time I hear that creature scream, I can feel my blood pressure rising. Ugh. Mm. Unlike Lights Out, which was much more in your face with the gruesome sound effects and terrifying stories. Quiet Please was uh, much more subdued and went at a slower pace, but was still very effective. Our next story comes from the program, The Black Mass. Now I discovered this gem about two to three years ago from the horror podcast. The show was created by Jack Nessel, who was the drama and literature director at radio station KPFA in Berkeley. And it ran from 1963 to 1967. Most of the episodes were adaptations from the works of classic writers like H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Virginia Woolf, Henry James, etc. Tonight's play, An Evening's Entertainment, was adapted from the short story written by English author M.R. James and was first broadcasted on Halloween 1964, which is fitting because this one is nuts. And that's all I'm going to say. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and, oh, this audio is also a bit low, so you may want to turn up the volume. So again, sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to an evening's entertainment. Welcome to the Black Mass.
tonight, here is a tale about olden times, based, more or less, on the story by Montague Rhodes James, An Evening's Entertainment. Nothing is more common form in old-fashioned books than the description of the winter fireside, where the aged grandam narrates to the circle of children that hangs on her lips story after story of ghosts and fairies and inspires her audience with a pleasing terror. But we're never allowed to know what the stories were. Here, then, is a problem which has long obsessed me, but I see no way of solving it finally. The aged grandams are gone, and the collectors of folklore began their work too late to save most of the actual stories which the grandams told. Yet such things don't easily die quite out, and imagination working on scattered hints may be able to devise a picture of just such an evening's entertainment. Let's see now. There's the fire burning brightly in the large stone fireplace. On the one side sits the squire, exhausted by a long day after the partridges and replete with food and drink. On the other side, his old mother sits with her knitting and the children, Charles and Fanny, are gathered about her knee. Oh, I want to wind Granny's yarn. You did it last time. No, you did it twice before that. Well, that doesn't count because... Oh, now, now, my dears. You must be very good and quiet or you'll wake your father. And you know what'll happen then. Oh, yes, I know. And be wounded, cross-tempered and send us off to bed. What's that? Fie on you, Charles. That's not a way to speak. Now, I was to have told you a story. But if you use such like words, I shall. Oh, oh Granny, please. Oh, please, we'll be Oh, now I do believe you have woken your father. Uh, hey, look there, Mother. You, you can keep them brats quiet. Yes, John, yes, yes, it's too bad. I've been telling them if it happens again, off to bed they shall go. There now. You see, children, what did I tell you? You must be good and sit still. And I'll tell you what. Tomorrow you shall go a blackberry. (gasps) (laughs) And and if you bring home a nice basket full, I'll make you some jam. Oh, yes, Granny, do. And I know where the best blackberries are. I I saw them today. Oh, and where's that, Charles, dear? Uh, I know too, Granny. It's in the little lane. It's in the little lane that goes up past Collins' cottage. Charles? Fanny, whatever you do, don't you dare to pick one single blackberry in that lane. Don't you know? There, how should you? What was I thinking of? Well, anyway, you both mind what I say. Why, Granny? Why shouldn't we pick them? Why shouldn't we pick them? Shh. Remember what I told your father. But, but, Granny, why? Very well, then. I'll tell you about it. Only you mustn't interrupt. Here, Fanny, you can take the knots out of this skein for Granny. Uh, Now, let me see. Oh, my, sounds like a storm blowing up outside, doesn't it, children? Well, no matter. We're safe and warm inside, aren't we? Well, now, that lane. All this, mind you, happened when I was quite a little girl. That lane was feared even then, and as far back as anyone can remember. And if something that happened to your granny on that lane is any indication, I've often wondered if there was any connection between what I saw and all that about Mr. Davis and his friend that I'm about to tell you. What did you see, Granny? Yes, what did you see, Granny? What did you see? Well, 
You know that lane passes near to the top of that hill, uh, where you've seen that old figure cut out in the crag? Well, I was passing along there one evening. I was already late getting home for my supper. But I remember seeing the currant and gooseberry bushes along the side leading to the top of the hill. The berries were ever so ripe and delicious. And before I realized, I had followed them, tasting one bush, then another, near to the top of the hill. Then I stopped for a moment. I was sure I heard something. Voices, I thought. But I, I couldn't make out plainly because of the wind. I couldn't make out whether they were coming from the top of the hill or from inside. Somewhere inside the hill itself, voices singing or calling or something. I wasn't frightened at all at first, and I remember walking farther up to see where the sounds were coming from, and the farther up I went, the more it seemed the voices were coming from all around me, from below as well as above. Then, suddenly, you know all those strange old rocks around the top of that hill? Beside one of those rocks. No one believed me when I told the story later, or made out they didn't believe me. Well, what I saw was a hand, a whole arm reaching up from out of the earth. Now, they, they say that the hill had once been a burial place in ancient times, and that a skeleton arm could very well be unearthed by the rains. <laughs> but that was no skeleton arm. There was flesh on it, dark and old, and long nails, more like claws. Now you can believe me or not, but I say I saw that arm reaching up out of the earth. And it wasn't a dead arm. When I came nearer, I saw its fingers moving like it was in pain, like it was beckoning me to help it, the rest of it, out of the earth. Now, I, I told you that I wasn't afraid, and that's true, until I got so close that it almost touched me. But then, then suddenly, a terrible fear overcame me, and I ran, ran all the way down the hill. And I have never once set foot on that place since. Well, now, it was only a short while after that that the events I was going to tell you about began. Uh, careful, Fanny, not too close to the fire with that yarn. That's better. Well, now, up at the far end of that lane, let, let me see, is it on, is it on the right or on the left-hand side as you go up? Oh, yes, the left-hand side. You'll find a little patch of bushes and rough ground in the field, and something like a broken old hedge round about, and the kind of gooseberry and currant bushes I told you about growing among it. Well... That means there was a cottage stood there, of course. And in that cottage, there lived a man named Davis. This Mr. Davis lived very much to himself. He didn't work for any of the farmers, having, as it seemed, enough money of his own to get along. But he'd go to town on market days. And one day he came back from market and brought a young man with him. And this young man and he lived together for some long time and, and went about together. And whether he just did the work of the house for Mr. Davis or whether Mr. Davis was his teacher in some way, nobody seemed to know. He was a pale young man and hadn't much to say for himself. 
Well, now, what did those two men do with themselves? <laughs> of course, I, I can't tell you half the foolish things that the people got into their heads. And we know, don't we, that you mustn't speak evil when you aren't sure it's true, even when people are dead and gone. But as I said, those two were always about together, late and early, and there's one walk that they take regularly to the place on the hill that I just told you about, and it was noticed that in the summertime they'd camp out there all night. I remember once my father, that's your great-grandfather, told me he had spoken to Mr. Davis and his young friend one evening when he met them on the road. He asked them why they were so fond of going up there. Why? Why, sir? It's a wonderful old place, and I've always been fond of the old-fashioned things. And when him, my boy here, and me are together there, it seems to bring back the old times of plains. Well, it may suit you, but I shouldn't like to be in a lonely place like that in the middle of the night. Oh, sir, we don't want for company at such times. That is to say, Mr. Davies and me is company enough for each other. Ain't it so, Master? Aye. Then there's a beautiful air there of a summer night, and you can see all the country round under the moon. Oh, it looks so different, seemingly, from what it do in the daytime. Them bars there, them mounds, all over up there. Now, what would you think was the purpose of them, sir? Why, I've heard, Mr. Davies, that they're all graves. And I know when I've had occasion to plough up one, there's always been some old bones and pots turned up. But whose graves they are, I don't know. People say the ancient Romans were all about this country at one time. But whether they buried their people like that, I can't tell. Ah, oh, to be sure. Well, they look to me to be older like than the ancient Romans. And dressed different. Uh, that's to say, according to the pictures the Romans was in armor. And you didn't never find no armor, did you, sir? Not by what you said. Well, I don't know that I mentioned anything about armor. But it's true, I don't remember to have found any. But you talk as if you'd seen them, Mr. Davis. Seen them, sir? That would be a difficult matter after all these years. Not but what I should like well enough to know more about them old times and people and what they worshipped and all. Worshipped? Well, I dare say I've heard and read about them heathens and their worship, torture and dances, behavior lewd and ungodly, sacrifices. Oh, torture and dances, you say? Sacrifices, you say? Oh. Lewd and ungodly behavior. What manner do you suppose? Read about them, you say. Heathen, you say. That was the only time my father had much talk with Mr. Davis. It was around that time that people believed some sort of meetings went on at night time on that hill, and that those who went there were up to no good. And there was known to be others besides Mr. Davis and his young man, I mean. And it was only guessed what really went on. Dances and torches, <laughs> Master. Not so close to the fire with the yarn, Fanny dear. Now mind what I say, else you find yourself going up in flames. Don't stretch that skein so, Charles. Hold it loosely. That's it. Well, now. Well, I suppose it was a matter of three years that Mr. Davis and this young man went on living together. And then, all of a sudden, a dreadful thing happened. I don't know if I ought to tell you what it was. Oh, yes, oh, please, Granny, please, please, please. Well, then, 
You must promise not to get frightened and go screaming out into the middle of the night. Oh, no, we won't. No, we won't. Oh, of course we will. One morning, very early, towards the turn of the year, I think it was in September, one of the woodmen had gone up to his work near the hillside just as it was getting light. And what he saw nearly drove the poor man out of his wits. He dropped everything he was carrying and, and ran as hard as ever he could straight down to the parsonage and woke up old Mr. White. Uh, parson, uh, Parson White, uh, Parson White. What is it, man? Hope. Quiet glory be, what's the matter with you? Oh, Parson, sir, come with me quickly. It's oh, horrible, it's horrible. Man. Oh, but you must come with me to see what's been calm, done. Calm, calm, yes, will you quiet down and tell me what it is, man? What have you seen? Oh, oh in the little woods near the hill. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, so I was going up to my work and I saw it in a clearing. A white thing, what, what looked like uh, through the mist. A white Like a man, thing. like a man, sir. And when I came near, I saw it was a man. Mr. Davies, young man, sir. What? Oh, he, he was dressed in a sort of white gown, sir. Oh, yes, he was, and he was hanging by his neck to the limb of the biggest oak. Quite, quite dead, sir. Glory be. But, but, but the real horrible thing, sir, was his hands. His hands. Oh, oh, I don't think there were any hands. What? No, I, I couldn't rightly see for, for the blood, sir. Oh, the blood. May the Lord bless us and save us. What a sight to behold! A demon's work, if ever I saw on himself before us. His left hand chopped clean off. Oh, if clean we can call it. Maybe cleansed would be the word for it. Cleansed, but for the right. Blood! Blood! Uh, oh, there, Parson, oh. there, just below. I hadn't seen before. Look, sir. What? Oh! The hatchet! Oh, the hatchet on the ground the here! Stuck with blood and bits of flesh. Horrible. Huh. Some flies on it already. Oh, don't touch it. Don't oh. touch it. Do you think, sir, that this is a murder? It's an abomination. Oh. An abomination, but I think it's his own act. I think so. You see here the rock over here? Uh -huh. he, he could have jumped from it and. Oh. Yes, it must have been. You can see the saints, the blood. The hand! Aye, sir, tis the hand where he chopped it off. And there it lies. Oh, a sight, sir. Such a thing. Oh, and do you see, sir? Do you see it is grasping something? So it is. What with all so. the blood can you make it out? Oh. It seems, it seems flesh. It seems part of a living body. Oh, sir, what do you think? God's mercy. I think it's no living body whose part this be. This is Mr. Davis's man, you say, on the tree. Ah, yes. I think we'd best, best find a, what we can of of Mr. Davis himself. Oh, yes, sir. We'd better hurry, Come I think. Now. Come on, Come. sir. The cottage is down there. Oh, on the hill, you see, in the, in the field. Well, now, the door of the cottage stood wide open. And the two men rushed in, not knowing what horrors to expect. Uh, Mr. Davis. Uh, Mr. Davis. But Mr. Davis. When they came to the little room which served as a parlour. Oh. oh. Bless us and save us. What they Look. saw. Oh, they would not forget the sight for the rest of their lives. What did they see? Well. There, oh, in the centre of the room... The work of the devil's own devil! ...was a table that had been set up as a kind of altar or place of torture and stretched across his feet in clamps attached to the foot and his wrists held at the corners above his head, spread out naked, facing upwards, lay Mr. Davis. His body almost in shreds from a whip which lay beside him, a tangle of blood and flesh. But the worst of it, oh, the worst of it, the work of the axe. Just below the breastbone, the body had been sliced as far down and torn open, and inside the axe had hacked and slashed away 
a part of the spine stuck up, but nothing else was recognizable except the blood. Oh, the blood everywhere. And the strangest thing of all... Do you see the, uh, the face, Woodman? Aye, sir, the most what? horrible part. What a mark on it. The eyes staring up. Oh. And the mouth open into a terrible grin. Oh. oh! Did you see that twitch? Yes. The man, the man can't still be alive and, oh, and no, breathing. And, and trying to speak, it seemed. Oh. Both men leaned close to hear and swore later what they heard. Though no one could make sense of it, but they swore they saw the mouth move and the words barely audible come forth. Ah, again, again, more, more, more. Well, now, Fanny, you're shivering, dear, and so close to the fire. Uh, you should fetch a woolly from upstairs, dear. No, Granny, I'm not cold. Well, here, you put Granny's shawl round you anyway. That's it, now. Well, did, did they bury Mr. Davis? Did, did they bury Mr. Davis? Oh, that they did, and his young man together. That very night, but not in hallowed ground, as Parson White would have none of that, but up on the hill. And it was no proper burial either. Some of the men just dug a hole large enough and gathered rock. Only those few men needed for the task were there. They heard the bell. It's not coming from the church, Parson. No, we can all hear. It's coming from inside the hill. For the coming of them of their own. Aye, Parson. And when we dug the grave, we could swear, but for the darkness and only the candles lighting, we struck things that screamed and pulled themselves Aye, deeper into the earth. Oh, we've, we've no place here. This isn't the Lord's ground. Quickly now, throw the bodies in. Cover them with rocks. And be away now, come on. And they did. But it wasn't exactly the end of the story. What, what happened then, Granny? What's that sound, Granny? Do you hear it? Ah, the sound. I'm coming to that. Well, next morning, some of the town folks passing by saw those strange black patches on the road leading up the hill like a trail. They, they look to be alive like. Oh, how could they be? But they shimmer so. And when they went, Closer. Oh, God preserve us. Flies. Thousands of huge flies. Oh, and look what they've been feeding on. Patches of blood from those bodies that were rolled up last oh, night. Where did they come from? Oh, there's never been so many flies about. Oh, oh look, lifting up all along. Oh, the sky is black with found the women, swollen beyond recognition, almost changed in shape, you might say, looking more like them horrible half-animal monsters you see pictures of in ancient books. But almost as fast as they came, they were gone, the blood cleaned from the road, and as some folks swore, taken back by the flies into the hill. Now, Charles. Yes, Granny. And Fanny. Yes, Granny. Now, I want you to pay special attention to what I'm going to tell you. You remember?
remember my saying about them blackberry bushes? Not to pick a single blackberry? Yes, yes, Granny. Well, from what I'm going to tell you now, you can judge for yourselves. Now, I said those flies went back into the hill, or wherever they came from, but that wasn't the end of it. Some of them is always seen about up there. And it was one day, while I was courting your grandfather, we were walking up there among those very bushes, and one of them berries, at least I thought it was, seemed to come alive in my hand. I felt the sting and couldn't open my hand. Now I can only say what I know. A numbness went over me. I heard sounds. Then something like a terrible whip. I can't remember all that happened. But your grandfather says he had to hold me from doing things. And it was his own words that the very devil had gotten into me. Later, when I opened my hand and wiped the awful insect away, I couldn't tell. From me or the demon itself. So you both mind what I say and find your blackberries down in the hollow near the creek. Oh, but but look at the time. Off with you, off with you to bed. Oh, oh Granny. Granny. Off with you now. Granny. Can can we have a candle tonight? A candle? Certainly not. Now, off with you and, and Granny will come and tuck you in later. Go on. Oh, oh Granny. And, and oh, Charles? Charles, don't you frighten your sister up oh. there in the dark or there'll be no more stories for you. Uh, Mother, what's that? Oh, I've just sent them off to bed. Oh, you've been telling them those stories again. You, you know, Mother, that none of them is true. Where do you get them from? Well, some of it's true, and the rest... Well, it's like I take hold of something and pull gently, and the rest comes up all of its own. Mm. Well, well, I couldn't tell you where it comes from. Uh, I'm going to my bed, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see to locking up, Mother. Uh, good night. Oh, I'll see to it. Good night, Sonny. Ah, yes. I'll just sit a little while longer. Where? Ah, where do they come from? Where? That was, we hope, an evening's entertainment by Montague Rhodes, James. Pat Franklin played Granny. Her children were played by Marion Winch and Arlene Sagan. The narrator and Parson White were played by Bernard Mays. Don LePage was Mr. Davis. And Frank Laverde played Granny's father. Mr. Davis's young man and the woodman and the snoring father were played by Eric Bowersfeld, and the two ladies who were eaten by the flies were Arlene Sagan and Pat Franklin. The technical production for the story was by John Whiting, and the adaptation was by Eric Bowersfeld. And now, good night.
Now, did I lie? Complete insanity, but still very entertaining. No pun intended. Well, that's our show for tonight. Make sure you follow me either on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash terror1970. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd. This is Keith signing off for Terror Radio. And I will see you all next week. <laughs>